All right, WineCellarMedia.com. This is um, Extended uh, Talk Fury. It's 11.24 a.m. <clears throat> I really would like to be doing this at 11 a.m. Getting it together. Mandatory seven-day work weeks. And the way things are looking, um, there is not going to be like an actual um, Indigenous Peoples Day weekend or even two days off. So it's actually, um, uh, it's looking like we're just going to be off for Indigenous Peoples Day. And then um, those of us with the least amount of seniority will be forced to uh, come in the rest of the days. And um, yeah, which is essentially Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then Monday, back to regular, which I mean, does regular actually ever end? You know, that's the interesting thing about a mandatory seven-day work week is that um, the week no longer exists. It's not a thing anymore, right? Like the, the mandatory seven-day work week eliminates the concept of a week, right? Sounds weird. It's weird to say out loud, but weeks don't exist for me, right? Like um, all the time really just runs together. The only reason why I have to even remember what day it is is really for podcasting purposes. Other than that, the actual day of the week does not fucking matter anymore. There is no such thing as Friday. There is no such thing as Tuesday. These things no longer exist on a mandatory seven-day work week. All right? And this is why I really don't give a shit. Like, um... I, we left Illinois and moved to Michigan, and we weren't able to vote in the um, general election because we can't get Michigan ID cards, driver's licenses, until January. I think it's January 6th. It's like we're in the queue <laughs> for January 6th, and then that's when we can go and get ID cards, driver's license for Michigan, which means you can't vote, right? Because you got to have that shit to even register to vote. So we're not even registered Michigan voters. And the only reason I'm going to register, increase library funding. Other than that, fuck both your parties, because both your parties are letting me do mandatory seven-day work weeks. All right? And um, and I also need to... <clears throat> I keep forgetting I need to pull out of paying union dues, because the seven-day work week is literally in the union contract. So fuck the union as well. All right, but let's take a look at some stuff. I think Talk Fury is the good um, platform for shit like this, right? So I think this is uh, correct to be sharing here. And because um, I'm using this Zoom thing, I can actually um, screen share. So I'm going to screen share for the Facebook's Live. And we're going to take a look at this individual, Rick Wiles. We've seen Rick Wiles. We've heard Rick Wiles. But it's more so who Rick Wiles is talking to and what Rick Wiles represents. All right, so let's take a look at this. Skip to do, right wing watch, indeed. Thank you for pulling these clips. I need a job at right wing watch. I'm good at pulling clips too, motherfucker. So coronavirus was part of it. Then they brought out Black Lives Matter. Then they brought out Antifa. Then they stole the election. And now they're bringing back coronavirus. Oh, yeah. All right, now, keep in mind, he's just saying they, right? Because they, for the listener, is whoever you, per- like, we'll tell you who we want you to hate, but whichever one you hate the most out of them, that's they, 
right? Whether it's the Democrats, the socialist, secret, communist Democrats, the Jews, right? The fucking feminazis, whoever it is, the right wing radio host wants you to hate and who you hate the most out of those groups. That is they. All right. And when they do that, they're going to bring back Black Lives Matter and Antifa. You know what? This time we're going to meet you in the streets. Come on. All right. So now he's saying we're going to meet you in the streets. Obviously, Rick Wiles is not going to meet you in the streets. But Rick Wiles followers, they're armed and they will meet you in the streets. Come on. Come on, left. We're going to meet you in the streets this time. See, and he said, come on, left. When they say left, they're not just talking about um, Antifa, who is clearly defined and has a leader whose name you can look up and has chapters. The fuck, get the fuck out of here. They're saying left anyone that's not conservative Republican, the bloody lot of you, right? From you pink hat motherfuckers out there high-fiving cops, they'll fuck you up too. They don't care. They call us all left. You know what they're doing here in Florida? The governor wants a bill passed in Florida to empower citizens to shoot and kill looters and rioters. Yes, sir. Get it done, governor. The people are with you. See? Now, the way we covered that Ron DeSantis shit, he's basically covering it the same way, really. He's talking the same gangster. Like, we're telling you this is gangster shit going on. It's going to be funny, man. Like, fucking 20 years from now, some young niggas that were listening to the wine are going to be like, you know, there was one podcast that told you. All right. Well, at least we tried to told you. We're going to defend this state of Florida. And see, and make sure they, that that's that slick shit. He's making sure to use the word defend. But it's like, who launches first strikes? Right-wingers always attack, but he's going to use the word defend, right? Preempted. Get out ahead of it rhetorically. We're not going to put up with this stuff anymore. The left, you better pack up and flee. You better, If you're part of this communist revolution, lefties, you better get out of the country. See, like, and now what's he saying? Pack up and flee. He's claiming turf. What the fuck have I been saying on this program since 2018? They are ready for gangbanging, turf hogs. Shit, they're already doing it, really. Right? Y'all niggas show up, put your fucking signs down and pick your guns up. They're ready to bang. They're already banging. They already got bodies. And they got these little Rittenhouse niggas. They got BGs putting in work. We don't have that. If, if we find out you're a part of the communist revolution, we're coming after you. All right? I don't care... FBI, put my name down on the list. Go ahead and do it. Do it. I don't care. Right now, what does that sound like, right? FBI, put my name on a list. I don't care. Right? Let me take a look at something. Um, let's take a look at here, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Let's go ahead and bring this up. All right. So this is from um 2003. Um... And I'm actually, you know what? Let's do the whole thing. I don't give a damn. It's my podcast. I'll do the whole fucking thing. All right. This from 2003. Quote, keep thinking I'm candy. 
till your fucking skull get popped and your brain jump out the top like Jack in the Box. In the hood, summertime is killing season. It's hot out this bitch, that's a good enough reason. I've seen gangsta niggas get religious when they start bleeding, saying Lord Jesus help me, cause their ass is leaking. When that window rolls down and that AK comes out, you can squeeze your little handgun till you run out, and you can run for your backup. But then machine gun shells gonna tear your back up. God's on your side? Shit, I'm alright with that. Cause we gonna reload them clips and come right back. It's a fact, homie. You go against me, you're fucked. If I get the drop, you if you can duck, you luckier than Lady Luck. Look, nigga. I don't think you safe cause you moved out the hood. If you um <clears throat> cause your mama's still around, dog, and that ain't good. If you was smart, you'd be shook of me, cause I'll get tired of looking for you. Spray your mama crib and let your ass look for me. That's the verse. Now what's this in the hook? Um, I do what I gotta do. I don't care if I get caught. The DA can play this motherfucking tape in court. Now, that's a gangster rapper, 50 Cent, Curtis Jackson, 2003. And what's Rick Wiles saying? Hold on, let's go back to the wild man. Rick Wiles, what did you just fucking say? Chase that freak out of the state. Chase it out of the state. Rise up and... It went to another clip. Out of the state. Rise up in Pennsylvania and chase that freak out of the state. You there we go. We're coming after you. All right. I don't care. FBI, put my name down on a list. Go ahead and do it. All right. FBI, put my name down on a list. Rick Wiles doesn't give a fuck. FBI, put my name down on a list. <clears throat> like, I got to get ready for these niggas, man. Right? They talk literally the exact same. The DA could play this tape in court. FBI, put my name on a list. It's the same gangster shit. Um. Alright, also, on Right Wing Watch, this is where you can really get this shit that these folks gotta say. What's the headline to this one? Walkaway speaker celebrates proud, celebrates proud boys' violence. Talks of civil war. This is up November 18th. See if it's a long clip. And Black Lives Matter threat. All right, here we go. We are not going to stand here and be little pansies and allow Antifa and Black Lives Matter threaten us. We are Americans. See what I'm saying? Like, they're naming names. And even though, like, there is no, there's, like, not a specific Black Lives Matter set. There's not a specific Antifa set. They're getting ready to bang on whoever's out there and just say you're from that hood. They don't give a fuck. Like, all right, how many times can I repeat this? Let's 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 hear them some more. We are not communists. We are not socialists. We are not deep state agents. We are Americans. And right now, it's your time, America. It's your time to rise. Whether Donald Trump wins or not, it's your time to rise. Whether Donald Trump wins or not. <laughs> Nigga. And I'd like to remind you, fucking, um, after 2016, after that, I think it was November 8th was, um, selection day. Alex Jones, there was no celebrating. Alex Jones shit was, and now we gotta go even harder. Cause they're gonna try to take it from us. 
Like, these people don't, like, while you fucking Democrats are like, soon as your motherfucker wins, you're like, literally, you got pages on the Facebooks, like, Occupy Democrats, the other 98%, Women's Rights News, basically a Democrat page, it's not, like, you would go there thinking, oh, this is a feminist page, it's a Democrat page, and they're all talking about brunching and sleeping, they're all about it's relax and celebrate time, yes, Kamala Devi, yes, queen, that's what they're doing. These niggas are ready to bang no matter what. Because we will not go down without a fight. We will not go down without bloodshed. I don't care. I don't care. The media can take what I say and say that I'm violent. I don't care. Antifa and Black Lives Matter brought us to this point. All right. (laughs) Without bloodshed. And I don't care what the media says. And what would Rick Wilde say? Put me on the FBI list. They don't give a fuck. While you're trying to be nice and respectable and have a discussion, we just need to have a debate. When they go low, we go high. Nigga, you're gonna get shot. If they want to fight, then they got one. Because I'm not afraid of these communists. I'm not afraid of these socialists. You know where to find me. You know where I live. Come down. I'm ready for you. 2A all day, baby. What I just say before on the other one, they're claiming turf. You know I ain't hiding. Did he just say I ain't hiding? You hear how gangster this shit is? Because I'm not afraid of these communists. I'm not afraid of these socialists. You know where to find me. You know where I live. Come down. I'm ready for you. 2A all day, baby. 2A, I don't even know what the fuck the 2A is, but how different, the way he's saying 2A all day, how different does that sound when Snoop Dogg is talking about rolling with Long Beach 20 Crips and says 2O, you know. We will not go away. We will keep America great. We will make America great again and again and again and again. Let me just say what's on all of your minds. If they want a second civil war, then they got one. Because I will not let this country fall. I will not let this country burn. I will fight to the very last breath. Nigga, and you're gonna go out there and march? (laughs) You're gonna go out there and march and protest these niggas? These niggas will fucking clap your ass, or they'll run you the fuck over with their cars, or they're gonna catch you slipping and fucking rat pack you and beat you to death. You keep on fucking with these niggas. Motherfuckers be thinking, like, I I get the little jokes and shit. Like, sometimes white dudes talk and they sound a little funny or whatever the fuck, you know? It's like, ah, you Kermit the Frog face motherfucker, you funny to me. But how did we get here? Right? Like, the average white man, white woman, white person walking around are descendants of something. (laughs) They're descendants of vicious attackers. Brutal, ridiculously brutal fucking people. But... But you gonna march, nigga. Stop it. All right. So I had another Rick Wiles that I accidentally almost mixed in there. 
All right, so let's get this next uh, Rick Wiles in here. Turn the uh, screen share back on. This is That's a cool feature. a man. In a dress. In a dress. Not a dress, probably. You're mentally ill. Okay, so this is probably, so. it's from 2018. Uh, that It sounds like he's just diving right in with transphobia. Like, that's literally how the clip starts from rightwingwatch.org. <clears throat> but I don't know if he's talking about, if it's if this is, like, specifically, intentionally a transphobic segment, or if he's talking about, like, some celebrity, uh, like, this is, so, I don't know why this stuff goes viral, but, like, a celebrity puts on a dress and suddenly is a, a, a big hero, and it's like, that, that nigga's a celebrity. Like, highlight somebody who's <clears throat> not as protected as a celebrity is. You know what I'm saying? Like, that motherfucker has security and shit. They chilling. Dr. Levine, you're mentally ill, and no normal person should listen to you. You need mental health counseling. You need deliverance. To the people of Pennsylvania, you are absolutely insane if you let that transvestite freak. Oh, it is. Okay, transphobic segment. Yes, because, um, all right, so, <clears throat> yeah, an individual won their race, and the individual happens to be a transgender person. Okay, so he's just, yeah, he's, he's, he's transphobic flexing, so we know that's coming. Let's move over a little bit more. We have um, 19 minutes until Talk Fury starts. <clears throat> I just figured I'd do a little preempting with some um, some extra wine cellar. As I dip through these mandatory seven-day work weeks, they are Martha fracking ridiculous. <clears throat> All right. So, Russell Mokhyber with the um, uh, Corporate Crime, Record, crime Report. Uh, this is from Friday, November 20th. Right now it is Sunday, November 22nd, 2020. Let's take a look at it. Building in Washington, D.C. This is your Corbett Crime Report of Morning Minute. For Friday, November 20, 2020, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Congressman Jamie Raskin is calling on the Department of Justice to publicly release its corporate crime settlements database. In an August 2020 letter <laughs> to Attorney General William Barr, Raskin requests that the list of all corporate deferred non-prosecution agreements be made public. Now, almost three months later, Raskin has yet to get the list from the department. I have asked the department for a full public accounting of all non-prosecution and deferred prosecution agreements entered into by the Department of Justice with corporate criminal defendants. I trust and believe that the department is working in good faith to provide me that information, and I look forward to a prompt, full accounting. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokai. All right, folks, for the Corporate Crime Report, Russell Mokaiber. <clears throat> Be checking that shit out. And if you don't have time to check that shit out, yeah, that, that's my intention, my idea with these, um, like, these extensions on Talk Fury, um, Maybe even I'll even preempt it as we bring uh, Maddie Stump on more and more. Um, just preempting with more um, constructive clips that folks might want to check out. Let's get another one. November 19th, 2020. Quick corporate crime report. 60 seconds with Russell Mokhyber. 
the National Press Building in Washington, D.C. This is your Corporate Crime Report of Morning Minute for Thursday, November 19, 2020. I'm Russell Mokhyber. The Securities and Exchange Commission last week announced two separate whistleblower awards for total payments of over $4.3 million. In the first order, the Commission awarded a whistleblower over $3.6 million for providing information that alerted the SEC to misconduct occurring abroad. The whistleblower provided substantial and ongoing assistance to enforcement staff which included traveling to another country at the whistleblower's own expense to meet with staff in person and provide extensive supporting documentation. In the second order, the SEC awarded $750,000 to a whistleblower who provided significant information that led the commission to uncover an ongoing fraud. The whistleblower assisted the SEC staff by meeting with them in person and explaining the likely mechanics of the fraudulent scheme. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokai. Yes, very dope stuff. I first heard the um, <clears throat> the corporate crime report with Russell Mokhyber, um <clears throat> Excuse me, Jesus. Uh, Ralph Nader actually uh, has his own program, and um, with David Feldman, and they uh, and they play um, one corporate crime report from Russell Mokhyber on each episode, and it's a weekly program. And uh, yeah, the the Ralph Nader Radio Hour—that's the name of it—and it's a uh, it's it's a dope program. I, I I like the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, my darn self. Wait a second, what the fuck am I doing? I'm over here trying to share the video. There we are, matey. I need to uh, share it to social dissonance and whatnot. All right, so and then let's take a dive over here to uh, the folks over there at Big Gay News, <coughs> which um. Big Gay News, they used to have a podcast, and I don't know why they don't use their RSS feed anymore, you know, but um, now they just uh, they just post the, uh, like a video of what used to be the podcast to um, to Facebook now, but yeah, they, they still do uh, Big Gay News, it's still uh, funky dope to me, woo, there we are matey, alright, and wait a second there buddy, I need to screen share this for you, right? <laughs> there we are. All right, and there that goes. Share. Good morning. This is Charming with your Big Gay News for Friday, November 20th, 2020. First up, Medical Express is reporting alarming health data. A study finds lesbian, gay, and bisexual people are more vulnerable to dementia. Study findings suggest that depression may be an underlying factor. In other big gay news, LGBTQ Nation reports cabinet construction moves. Corinne Jean-Pierre is the top candidate to be Biden's press secretary. She would be the first black woman in that role. Finally, in big gay news, Ebar is reporting changes to the CDC HIV post. A gay physician has been named director of the agency's division of HIV AIDS prevention. The appointment for Dr. Dimitri Daskalaskis is effective December 21st. <coughs> and that's it for Big Gay News. See you next week. Take care of yourselves and stay healthy. All right. Yeah, good man. Yeah, big, big gay news. Wholesome, wholesome, wholesome. I like those folks over there. <clears throat> All right, 13 minutes until Talk Fury starts up. And I do indeed need to uh, get a seven minute in of uh, 
these good folks over here at uh, Brad Friedman at the bradblog.com uh, <clears throat> and uh, Brad Friedman has the um, the big green news and this is from November 19th 2020 they do um they do uh, the green news report uh, twice a week uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays so we are catching the uh, Thursday one it's harder for me to catch the Tuesday one that's just a, it's a funkier, busier time of the non-existent week. Oh, man, I guess that kind of makes, I guess there are some things that are traditional as that part of the week is wackier, if you will. But uh, beyond that, let's go ahead and get to this uh, green news report that folks might dig. Uh-oh, skip to do. It's Thursday, November 19, 2020. We'll begin to get that fleet of petrol and diesel cars off the road, beginning what Boris Johnson would call an electric revolution here in Britain. UK accelerates phase-out of gasoline cars to 2030. US car makers knew 50 years ago that burning fossil fuels causes global warming and lied about it. Trump Interior Department allows states to veto federal conservation projects. Plus... San Francisco changes building codes to phase out polluting natural gas. All of those phase outs and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. We have the technology to do it. They certainly have the technology to do it in the United States of America. And you can do it whilst delivering hundreds of thousands of new green jobs at the same time. Thanks, Boris. Man, do I wish the U.S. had a conservative party that wasn't insane. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I think you're kicking us off today with some very good news. Climate change, apparently is over. <laughs> no, no, sadly, not at all. What? However, October 2020 was only the fourth warmest October ever recorded. See, it was the fourth warmest. It is getting cooler. Everything is fine. That's according to both NOAA and NASA, based on record keeping that began in the 1880s. But never fear, 2020 is still on track to clock in as one of the top two hottest years ever recorded, which is remarkable because there is a cooling La Nina weather pattern in the Pacific Ocean, and that has not slowed down 2020 at all. Most of the years where we've had record heat, it's because we've had El Ninos at the same time. Right. Now, we have a La Nina cooling things down. And it's not helping. Oh. In Washington, outgoing Trump Interior Secretary David Bernhardt has released a special secretarial order altering how the Federal Land and Water Conservation Fund is administered. Permanent funding for the program was finally passed by a bipartisan Congress and touted by Trump on the campaign trail to boost his environmental credentials, but Bernhardt's new order now restricts the funding that's available for conservation projects and effectively allows states to veto public land purchases, which critics say undermines the very purpose of the fund. So he did it just for the election and now they're undoing it? Yeah. How unlike them. 
However, the New York Times reports that President-elect Joe Biden's transition team includes dozens of climate change policy experts who are already drafting executive orders requiring that every federal agency, department, and program prepare to address climate change and that they are gearing up to legally dismember Trump's rollbacks of climate and pollution regulations. All I heard was dismembering and Trump. In other news, U.S. automakers GM and Ford knew 50 years ago that car emissions caused dangerous man-made climate change. That's according to internal company documents obtained by E&E News. But instead of shifting their business models away from fossil fuels, the two car giants spent decades and millions of dollars lobbying to undermine efforts to reduce emissions, funding climate science denier front groups, blocking efforts in Congress to improve fuel efficiency and make vehicles cleaner, and they even doubled down on gas-guzzling trucks and SUVs. The revelations mirror similar investigations showing how ExxonMobil executives also knew decades ago that their product causes global warming and also lied to the public and blocked action. So they've been lying to us for 50 years, and now that we know the truth, we got an entire Republican Party that is lying to us about them lying to us. But Britain has had quite enough of that. This week, Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced the UK will move up its planned phase-out of internal combustion engine vehicles. Instead of the previous target of 2035, the UK will ban the sale of new gas and diesel cars starting in 2030. Wow. That is an ambitious timetable, according to Stephen Norman, managing director of Britain's Vauxhall Motors, in an interview with the BBC. So, yes, it's a little bit tighter than we were expecting, but... Um, the plans are in place, obviously, to meet that uh, and meet it. We're going to have to. You mean they're just trying to meet it because they have to, because the government said so? They're not uh, whining and complaining and filing lawsuits and trying to throw Boris Johnson out of his job? Exactly. I am so moving to the UK. It's part of what Prime Minister Johnson is calling his Green Revolution to revive Britain's economy and create jobs through innovation to reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Finally, San Francisco is going all electric. This week, the city's board of supervisors voted to update building codes to eliminate fossil fuels in all new residential and commercial buildings beginning next June. New homes and businesses will run on all electric appliances, significantly reducing the city's contribution to greenhouse gas emissions, reducing indoor air pollution, and removing the danger of natural gas explosions. Nice. Let the lawsuits begin. I'm still moving to the UK for their green revolution. For much more on all of these reports and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report. All right, and that should be the whole deal there. All right, folks, and yeah, definitely wanted to uh, preempt the program with uh, with some of those clips. <clears throat> and you can find those yourself. I mean, if you're interested in looking at the bradblog.com, Lavender Media, um, Right Wing Watch, Russell Mokhyber, and the Corporate Crime Report, uh, those are all things that I regularly check out myself. And... Um, 
back when I used to work five days a week, I would regularly uh, have show prep time to get those on the program. Now there's uh, seven-day work weeks. There's not as much time. So now I really just have to kind of force it. And there is less time for uh, such uh, joyful things, really. And just a couple more. These are not actually clips. Just hit you with a couple of headlines that I have here. Um, off of Atlanta Black Star. I'm a little funny style about Atlanta Black Star. Like, they post some shit from some regularly irresponsible, uh, relatively, not regularly, relatively irresponsible writers. But for the most part, like, if I were to rate Atlanta Black Star, I'd give it, like, a 75 out of 100. 75 to 80, like, as far as, like, a, a, a dope black outlet. Um, Atlanta Black Star headline, they say they don't have it when they do. Beauty supply owner encourages more blacks to open stores despite distributors blocking access. Um, folks are not very unfamiliar with that. With um, It's basically, you know, I don't think it's all Korean folks, but, you know, like where I'm from and I've heard it uh you know you even heard ice cube say it on a song i think it was down for whatever on the lethal injection album you know koreans act so nice koreans. yeah i think tupac has mentioned them and like they tend to want to you know come here take our money and then freeze us out of our own market that would benefit us mm-hmm. you know and it's um it's tough and then um in recent years just as with um there isn't an increase in police violence. There's just an increase in evidence, right? And there is not an increase in these um, Korean store owners beating up black girls and women in their stores. Just an increase right. in evidence, you know? And um, and then also um, over here at Yahoo News, uh, mm. Pelosi suggests she'll serve her last term as speaker. So, uh, finally on her way out, so I guess uh, Luke Russert is no longer uh, a misogynist for asking if she's too old. Back when, um, I think it was 2013 when Luke Russert asked that. And the New York Times will not let me see this one, but they have an article up about the uh, Philadelphia bombing of the MOVE organization. And we have played clips on here from uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal, who I first heard of um, when I was about, eh, about 17 on a, um, on a Talib Kweli record. It was uh, Talib Kweli and Bahamadia. And he mentioned this, he said, uh, this Mumia. And at that time, um, I think I was, I don't think I was Googling yet. I was still yahooing and asking jeeves at this time like what the fuck is this mumia so i read about that a little bit when i was 17 and um i damn near went hotep i'm glad i at that age i was i was very hotep adjacent i was almost there you know (laughs) but did not end up there there's eric hudson on the program on the video there and um chelsea springler should be on the way uh also has the link and on this one, in the uh, show notes, in the episode description, I literally lifted straight copy and paste from a um, a Chelsea Springler post to the Facebook, uh, two of them. One of them is uh, talking about this upcoming episode, saying, uh, quote, let me tell you one easy trick academia doesn't want you to know. 
Your IQ goes up 10 points once you make an automatic email signature listing your credentials. <laughs> and uh, I think there may be um, some sort of respectability politic or something else there to bring up. I don't know much about academia, um, but I'm interested in, uh, in hearing more about it. And uh, there was one more. There it is. This is the one that uh, where I asked if uh, Springler would like to bring this up on the program. Uh, quote, Goddess help me. I'm a TA, teacher's assistant, for a class with students sending in assignments claiming nations like the U.S. are both capitalist and socialist at the same time because of mixed economies, shared enterprise of private and public entities. And it goes to show elite universities still have students with poor foundations. And oh, and I went back to the Zoom screen, and Springler is not there yet. But it you is. Hear me? Uh, yep, your audio is coming through. Excellent, excellent, excellent. All right, there is uh, Eric. It is winter time. Definitely have on the winter beanie. It is fucking mm-hmm. cold out there. Or yeah, I think we're getting to about refrigerator temperatures. Like once you're in the mid to lower thirties, that's uh, pretty much refrigerator. So. However comfortable you would you comfortable you would be inside of a refrigerator, put those clothes on before you go outside, and then try to figure out why um, capitalism allows homelessness to exist or wants or, or it to as, exist. As my Jamaican cab driver says, "Put on clothes." Oh uh, yeah, y'all got more uh, more more culture out there. Huh? I've never really been around. I guess living in Orlando, Florida, I was around um some more multiculture, but never really a great deal for my life in general. Well, I didn't hear it in Chicago as a New York cab driver. We was like, put on clothes. Oh, uh, you've lived out there? No, I said, when I was in, when I was, um, when I lived in New York. Yeah. You know, the cab, there were more, yeah, I mean, they, they're in Chicago, but they just don't, you know, Chicago, it's not all that diverse as people think, you know, and oh. now it's mostly white suburbanites moving in, but it's just, you know, the cabbies have been replaced by Uber, but in New York, you still got lots of cab drivers. Oh, God. Wait. So, like, the cab business is dying or dead out there now? Uh, well, the cab, it, it's kind of, it's dead here, but it's di- but it's slowly dying in New York because of Uber, but not nearly. I mean, it's still a lot of cabs out there where in Chicago, um, you can't even get a cab, which makes it difficult for folks like me who don't want, like, you know, a... Um, you know, I'd rather have a nice computer than a, what do you call it, one of those I geni- a genius phone or whatever those phones are. Um, you know, but so now in Chicago, you need one of those those genius phones to, um, you know, to get a cab or something like, or Uber. Um, but you just, but there's no cabs. There's just, you know, there's no cabs. But in New York, there's still a lot of cabs. Still ain't picking up black folks a lot, but you know you still got to dress a certain way. But yeah, it's it's deep. Yeah, the the, the Uber has really um, kind of exiled cab drivers. Yeah, and it's kind of a bug out because like because of the seven day work week and the podcast, and I'm a husband and my wife has a disability like double time like she needs um, mental health medication and services as well as physical disability and a stepson with autism and three cats in the house i'm a ridiculously busy person and uh so yeah sometimes like i fucking and not even sometimes it's 
like at least two or three times a week i literally order from uber eats so that i can keep typing at the desk and moving shit here and there and doing laundry and scooping cat litter and running the household while i know that food is on the way and i can grab that eat take a bite and then go run to the shift seven day work week and uh so i'm busy like that and I just happen to notice, like, because I always do the leave it at the door and I put please don't ring the bell because I'll get a notification when they're there anyway. And yeah. I go to pick it up from the doorstep and I see the car leaving and I'm thinking, like, hold up. This person delivered for Uber Eats, but I see a Lyft sticker on the car and the car has a Jimmy John's topper. So, like, this motherfucker, whoever's driving that car is hustling, as they say, six ways from fucking word, Sunday, word, word, trying word. to goddamn survive, whoever the fuck that driver was. And, you know, and I always, um, I don't really make a choice on it. I think it, put, like, the tip that they already have preloaded in there, I just let it ride. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't take away from it or modify it. Like, they already have a tip preloaded in, and it's like, fantastic, let that shit ride. And, uh, yeah, so sh shout out to that fucking driver. Yeah, let's say it again. They delivered Uber Eats with a Lyft sticker on the car and a Jimmy John's topper. Mm. Like, that motherfucker is driving all, like, that's their office. That's a rolling office. You know, I want to say one thing about this show. This is why this show is crucial. Crucial, like that group that came out in the 90s called Crucial Conflict. I mean, this group is crucial because... It's the it's not only it's about blackness in America, but it's also about uh, it's also about, you know, radical anti I mean, radical uh, uh, feminism with with uh, with uh, with with Phoenix, the, the, the rising, the rising Phoenix, um, you know, with with swap and, and, and Chelsea. Um, but it's also a distinct it's one of the things that we don't have anymore and it's about the dwindling working class the destruction of working class and labor in America you represent right now the the, the, the you know you got the you got the, the gear the gear of the of the of the worker that used to that used to you, you got the gear of, of the worker and the job of the worker that used to be middle class be able to send a family, um, afford to college, get a car, get a house, send kids to college, and the only thing that's the, the now the work is still there. But as you talk about now, it's highly exploitative. They got you working there uh, seven days a week, but you still got the uniform. Uh, you still got the uniform of what it meant to have that sort of job in the 40s, in the 50s, in the 60s. I mean, I remember people would come on my block and they would wear that all the time because they were proud of these jobs. When you saw them in that uniform, you knew that this was a man who probably owned his house, probably owned that bungalow on the south side of Chicago. I mean, so it's just, but and, and you're right. You are, you, you're totally right. I mean, these, the, you've got people out there working three and four hustles on the side and they still can't get unemployment right now. They still can't get unemployment. And they still aren't even making a sustainable living wage. And so you got people out here working three, four jobs and not making a sustainable minimum wage. And this is what America looks like. But nobody's talking about it, though. New York Times ain't talking about it. Nobody, you know, Washington, uh, Washington Post ain't talking about it. Chicago Sun-Times ain't talking about it, you know. Yeah, 
You know, I was having a conversation with a couple of students at the university I'm at um, recently about the change in jobs. And some of these students, you know, they kept parroting this this idea that people are getting retrained in a new kind of economy. They were saying that, you know, oh, okay, well, you know, the industrial economy left, you know, cheaper labor went to, you know, got outsourced, all this stuff, and people are getting retrained for a new service economy and a tech economy. I said, people are, it, people are getting retrained. Workers are, like, how out of touch are some of these people? Like, I don't see truckers getting retrained or something. I don't see people who, you know, is the government coming in and training people how to do code and making sure they get jobs? Like, where, where do you get that idea from? That people are, yeah, driving three, you know, working for three different apps. That's not getting reached retrained that's hustling to get by because there's no nothing else to you know it's that or the street like seriously i, I don't know um there's just so much out of touch like that that's an assumption that some intellectuals just made and then and have no idea what's going on for people on the outside you know well they they they, they get it because that's what they're parroting by corporate media talking about well that's what's necessary and then you get someone who you know, it's like when when GE, um, uh, this guy Timothy Eitnewit, who was head of GE um, under the Obama regime, and this guy got all of these grants um, to retrain workers for green technology, and the guy took the grants and downsized anyway and moved to Mexico with the, the GE plants. He was also on on Obama's um, team to do this systematically throughout the United States. And so what you see is these ta- these talks about retraining people, but um, only a couple of them end up getting retrained. And mostly folks, what a retraining looks like is if you are articulate enough to work at a call center, then you get retrained for call centers, but you don't get that much. It's because mostly our call centers are in Indian, Asia and the Philippines where you can pay people a lot less for it. So no, there, there's no retraining here. There's just, you know, down massive, massive amounts of downgrading to jobs amongst uh, with folks, which make it even more competitive for the, the people that those jobs used to actually, um, you know, go to. Yeah, and they get this stuff from the media, but these are also people who are expected to be experts or become experts who are people who are going to say that in the media. So these are people who are making these assumptions in order to frame a worldview about the economy that works for them in their class that says, oh, here's what's happening. We can explain it in this way. And it's still healthy. It's transforming, but it's okay. It's not okay. It's okay for them maybe, and their class and the intellectual class and and the the way that it works in this corporatized higher education um, format that the intellectual class in the United States is in. And we can talk about that. Um, You know, I know that was part of our um, topic today. We wanted to get into the into academia a little bit, um, considering uh, I'm getting my doctorate at uh, Tulane University and some folks have asked about uh, what's going on there, what am I doing, Uh, what am I up to, what's the point, I ask myself that too. Uh, No, um, so yeah, I guess I'm monologuing here, all right. Um, So Tulane University is where I'm getting my doctorate in sociology. 
and it's actually a interdisciplinary program. It's pretty unique. They want to bring in social work and urban studies together. So everyone in my program who are doing PhDs related to those things, um, doing public practice, you know, at least in talk um, to some extent, depends on the, the, the PhD people are doing, the kind of research they're doing. I'm in my first semester, so I'm not in that stage of doing my doctorate yet, still taking classes. But um, yeah, you know, the reason I'm there is because you know, I want the tools and the training it gets to publish and to uh, speak more broadly on a lot of these issues um, rather than going into academia for academia's sake. Um, so for me, it, it's, it's one chess move of many that for being involved in a life, lifelong project of revolutionary movement building. And, you know, I was just, before we got on the program, I was actually looking up some of the backgrounds of some leaders that I'm not, that I, that it's, you know, some of them I was familiar with, some not, in terms of like, what's going on with like these historical leaders and revolutionary movements. And I'm not saying that according to me, being any kind of leader, but I'm saying like, like figuring out what is the role of intellectual class and people, have they helped or have they not helped? Because we could also talk a lot about how academia, especially in the United States now, is I think is really hindering social movements. They're, they're part of a middle to, to middle upper class group of people who despite even their politics sometimes, like other Marxist intellectuals, when things get hot, when things, when things get dangerous, they, they'll go back and, and, uh, and go back on their politics in order to maintain their own bourgeois status. They are part of the bourgeois. The, ac the ac academia is undoubtedly the bourgeois if you're there. And I think historically it has been. You can see how people who have been involved in revolutionary movements, and I'm only bringing up leaders because we can find their bios. They don't make movements. They don't, you know, the, the, the leaders, you know, are, are people who, you know, came to the front maybe because they had charisma and, and arguably maybe had some kind of privilege that allowed them to get to the front of a movement, but without, you know, an entire mass of people behind them, what, you know, for all sorts of socialist movements across the world, they would have been, it would have been nothing. So anyway, I was looking up these bios just for the sake of seeing like what happened, what was the interaction of some of these people in academia? You know, you've got people like, you know, you got Che Guevara, who was a medical doctor, you know, then traveled the world, saw how fucked up things were and left and then, you know, got involved in Cuba. Uh, you know, on that note, there's, um, we've got um, Fidel Castro, who was a lawyer and he actually represented himself when he was in jail um, after the, after the, uh, the battle in Santiago um, to represent himself against Bautista in the military. Um, anyway, um, Ho Chi Minh, you know, tried to get an education in France um, and got kicked out for, um, you know, demonstrating and saying that, you know, the Vietnamese should not be uh, held to colonial laws um, by France um, later. And then he worked and traveled as a cook on, you know, on ships until he was he got the chance to uh, go through university in, uh, I believe, in Moscow, one of the communist uh, universities. So, and then went on from there to build in Vietnam. So, you know, that's kind of an anti-bourgeois university being in a communist nation, so that's unique. Um, 
you know, we've got uh, Amilcar Cabral, revolutionary leader. He was a he was an agricultural engineer. So some of the, so some of this is to say that their education brought them certain skills that they were able to apply to revolutionary movements, or maybe their their past in academia and philosophical notions helped radicalize them. But I don't really think that that's like the, the academy is radicalizing people. I think it might just it's a way to get some tools. But arguably, so much in the academia is built to put people in a class against working class people. And that's still true. So everything that so many of these leaders, they were either they were either uh, left the academy voluntarily or they were kicked out of their class for whatever reason and the intellectual class for what they were doing. You know, Lenin notoriously kicked out of the universities for demonstrating. You know, none of these people had like a good relationship with academia in a, you know, capitalist academia at any point. They, they, they were eventually uh, put against it. So, um, yeah, you know, we've talked, Eric, about uh, the issue of the intellectual class because I never want to romanticize it. Um, I'm trying to remember, was it the, the Khmer Rouge? Who, in Cambodia, the, yeah. the, rev, the, when, the revolution came up, the professional class of people, which would include academics and people, you know, lawyers, doctors, all of these people. Um, so much violence had been done to the peasants by this class of people and the urban class of professionals that when the revolution came, they, they snapped and they and they massacred a lot of the professional class. And I'm not gonna, and I'm not condoning that. But what I'm saying is that was a reaction to the violence of a bourgeois group that includes academics. Yeah. So. yeah, they they got rid of all the universities and it was a tragic reaction. But it's it's it's, you know, I always say, you know, the the academicians should take notes. But of course, they won't take note um, just because, um, you know, being in academia is a very privileged place to be always. And especially in times of, of hard times. You're literally able just to ride it out in a level of privilege um, because generally it's always been reserved for the um, the uh, it's always been reserved for the the sons and daughters of the aristocrats. Um, and that's that's one of the blessings of the, the institution you're at right now, Tulane and in and in. in which is really the crown jewel of, of Louisiana and especially and, and the South. Um, uh, but um, yeah, no, it, it's, it's real. It's that was the Camarouche was a real situation. And I think, you know, part of the point of university training and, you know, the obvious positives of it is getting educated and getting these tools to use, but Looking at, you know, the communist universities, which, you know, by far no expert on, but um, seeing how a different kind of society could educate people and how people had access to that. People from, you know, you know, people who come from peasant classes across the world in China, notoriously, you know, went to, um, you know, went to the communist universities and just had and it, it was open arms for them. African revolutionaries went there to get educated. 
So academia doesn't have to function like this. It doesn't have to be an elite place um, forever in order to get these kinds of skills. And part of the point I'm making is that any revolutionary movement will have a huge emphasis on education. It doesn't have to be the university structure at all. That's just what we have available as a way of building these tools that a lot of people go to to get it because we don't have any other model besides the leaders bourgeois model of giving these skills. But a movement can focus on building education in any way. The Black Panthers put a huge emphasis on community education mm. to get people to understand their world and to start thinking critically about their world instead of just functioning as robots in this. In well, order I'd like to, to I'd like to, yeah, I mean, and that's that's a crucial point. I'm reading a, a, a history of the Soviet Union again. I, I always need to brush up on revolutionary trends, um, but I'm reading, and it's, it's interesting that it really was the Soviet university students that really when about 1906 i believe um what they realized was the university students and this was this was what uh this is what uh lenin uh you know came up when he was when he was beefing with uh matter the other the other person <coughs> lenin was pushing a, 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 the, the idea of a full-time revolutionary and what they did was it was the university students that went out into communities and worked with them to understand what didn't just preach um, about all of these theoretical doctrines, but worked with them and talked with them about what was going on in their daily lives. And that's really what built the Bolshevik Revolution. It was this partnership between university students in Moscow and the 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 new the recently released from serfdom peasant class that then became the workers. They were they went from peasants uh, to workers, and that's what really built revolutionary was this this dialogue. Um, where these university students went out into the communities. And what they also managed to do was before Lenin, they would go out and they would talk with these people and they would try to convince them not to be, you know, to get rid of, of, you know, of, you know, what we have in America, white Jesus, Um, you know, get rid of Christianity. And the peasants would beat the hell out of them. And they would turn them in to the uh, to the police, um, but what they did was they realized instead of going directly at the religion, start going at the conditions that the church keeps them in the the amount of property that the church owns. So start talking about those sorts of ideas. And then let them make up their own minds about the the how fucked up the churches were in their own domination. So yeah, that back then the 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 universities students played a key role in revolutionizing the population. And it's good to hear that Comrade Chelsea is talking about restarting that that tradition. Uh, back, which we saw in the American Civil Rights Movement, but then it was, you know, exploited by capitalism. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's real. And it's because, you know, at the university, if in this society, if you're privileged enough to go to it, you, you know, I basically, 
you know, I'm being paid by a stipend for the services I do as a teacher's assistant. And I get a certain um, fellowship to study here to cover me for five years, basically. So I do certain services for the university, um, especially being a teacher's assistant. But my classes are covered at this level, at the doctoral level in the United States. So it's a huge privilege to be here to basically be able to spend my time and get paid basically studying and then writing my doctorate and and learning to teach um, in the classroom as an assistant. And that's how I spend my time instead of eight hours, um, you know, in a working class job that I used to and doing customer service for a job that I used to have to do that was, you know, absolutely alienating um, to the body, to the mind, everything. So now I get to spend that time doing the pursuit and thinking about the things that I want to think about and write about. So the point of that is people who are actually have a revolutionary consciousness who are doing that, it's it's a huge way to free of time and just be doing that. And it's like you were saying, Eric, the idea of working with people Um, I think this is where so many socialist groups, especially in the United States, not to name names, um, some have gone defunct recently um, for a number of these issues, but ultimately... um, Why can't we name names? Can I say it? Huh? Why can't we name names? Are you sure? ISO. Yeah. Yeah, They weren't really international. They... um, You know, they had this model of going around and uh, from, you know, they recruit at universities instead of like having, instead of, you know, none of them are working class people, um, you know, or at least don't stay working class people for the most part, especially not the leaders and the people who got paid in that organization. Um, They, you know, so they recruit at universities, they have these little clubs, and then they try to get these university students, majority white students who are Marxists and to go and they'll set up tables and they'll try to preach at people and they think that that is a you know for them it's it's a pastime it's a bourgeois pastime for them as university students essentially um but they would just preach at people and thinking that that's a way to like build and instead of working with people you know um you know i also look at the you know the, the maoist movement the protracted people's war in china you had people who were the communists from the urban centers. They didn't just go out and preach at people and, you know, at the peasants that largely made the revolution in China, where the majority of people were the peasant class. They left and they, the people who were already, you know, the communist core, they went and they joined and became workers in the peasant communities. I mean, so they went covertly and didn't say, hi, I'm a communist from, you know, the cities. They went in and they worked for years in peasant communities and yeah. became part of the community and built communist cells across across um, rural communities in China from there for years. It took them years, like two decades, and then they finally successfully went in and um, and invaded the cities, basically, and kicked out the pro-imperialist, um, you know, pro-United States, pro-England, um, you know, Chinese compradors. But they had to, they, there was no preaching at them. They were part of them. Um, and that, that's just interesting because you got to picture it. And this was what, 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 um, and the, in the, in the, the Maoist, uh, um, they did this in America 
um, during the, the, the 30s and the 40s, and it was successful. Um, but, you know, you, they, they, they identify these highly charismatic leaders. And I'm sure Brother Jackson understands this because he probably, probably does, you know, he probably unknowingly fills the same role um, where he's at. As we used to call them the salty minds, not just the salt minds, but the salty minds. That was the term back in the day for for exploit, you know, working in factories and things like that. Um, but there's that one person that makes that keeps work bearable. Generally, that person is funny. He's got the jokes. You know, he manages to to make the jokes about the management behind their backs, just keeping a a level of solid. And oftentimes. The management's aware of this person and they tolerate this person because he keeps the workers some sort of level of happiness to be there. And that's why when that worker's not there, then everybody's kind of sad because that work that there's always that worker that makes the job somewhat tolerable with the jokes and the and the intellectual stimulation as well gets the intellectual conversations going well these were always the communist the maoist the marxist people that went into these factors and then they organized and then once when this 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 the the um these leaders got a certain credibility then it would be all of a sudden you know they they go out for their break for their little meagerly runs break and this guy this leader this woman this leader all of a sudden says, these are my friends. They got some free lunches for us, some water, something to drink. And then that was really a way of mobilizing the workers, which again, we've got to get back to. And, you know, I think the big point of so a lot of the examples that I've been bringing up here has been to talk about how we change the role of education and decolonize education and what that means to people um, in, in for a different society. Because in a capitalist society, education necessarily becomes an area of competition where you attain a certain kind of education in order to be above people who will not. And it's always gonna be like that in a competitive model of capitalism and that you attain these certain things to be exclusive in order to get a certain career. And if we can't talk about how education should be used for a way for everybody to question their society and to question their role in it as a way to build a better society, then we can't, we're we're never gonna get anywhere. So, and being working class takes away that, takes away, not takes away that ability, but but capitalism puts all of these barriers against workers so that they can't, so that it's, you don't have time. You don't have time to, to be sitting there and questioning your world and be thinking for hours of what we could do better. What do I want to do better? And what kind of world do I want to live in? And being in conversation about that. Capitalism doesn't want working class people doing that. They don't allow that. That's part of the alienation from the labor and the products that you make. You don't get to choose the products that you make because you say, oh, I don't want to make cereal anymore for, you know, these for, um, you know, this factory, my community needs to make this. We need to manufacture this. So this is what we decided. We got together and we decided that we looked and we studied what our community needs. And here's what we're going to make this week. That's not how capitalism works. But if the workers ran their society, that's what it would be. And if people were critically 
questioning their world and building skills to do that amongst each other. That's what and that's what a new society would be using education for. And everybody needs that if we're going to build that. You can't have an exclusive group. The intellectual class might have certain skills, but you can't have a revolution in a new society without overwhelmingly the majority of people in society being able and participating in that together. Right. So we have to look at how are we going to work with education with people to do that? Because some of the, you know, and I, and we've talked about media, for instance, on, on, a, on most of our uh, weekly episodes here, the, the immense influence and domination that mass media has. It tells people what to think and it's not a dialogue, right? Um, when I'm looking at movements that really start to engage people and change people across the board, um, there, these are populist movements that get people in public politics, in a public square, maybe. They could be online. It doesn't have to be in person in a public square. Facebook could be that way, but we're not usually using, most people aren't using Facebook that way. Um, a way to start engaging with people, like Occupy Wall Street did this, and that was one, and it radicalized me. The university didn't radicalize me. I was an undergraduate student in art school. That did not radicalize me. Being passing Occupy Wall Street protesters every day on my way to classes and stopping there and asking what the fuck are these people talking about? Why are they in the street and blocking traffic and they're here every fucking day? And you have a group of people who say, oh, we're out here because, you know, Wall Street actually bailed out all these banks and it's causing foreclosures in our communities. It doesn't make sense. And, and some of these people are homeless over here and they shouldn't be. And I said, wow, I didn't know about that. And I don't understand that. And actually that was a Barack Obama's policies. And I said, oh, I didn't understand that was a problem. Well, now I get have people telling me that this is a problem down the street. And that completely changed how people relate. So you had people publicly talking about their problems like that and debating their problems in a public, on the street. And if that I can remember, totally you, were, you were you were a, Bar- a Barack Obama supporter. I was, and then Occupy educated you on that, and then you know you were no longer a supporter of Barack Obama. And that, yeah. that's yeah, revolutionary. That's all I knew on is he, you know, he, he he talked great, seemed great on TV. Everybody, all the other liberals I knew liked him. What was he doing wrong? Well, they, you know, they, they, all these people were talking about all these complicated things and it made me question it. So having a public square of any form like that, that gets people to start engaging and critically thinking about these things that, that the media is not going to tell them, you know, and you don't have to, and nobody agreed, like there were, you know, vicious intellectual fights happening between people. Um, but that gets people, that changes people, that's getting people to critically engage. That is a form of, you know, street education itself that people can be involved in. And so, and movements need that, you know? And the other thing I did, the other thing, what are you saying, Eric? No, I just thought that that dialogue, that interaction and that dialogue is something that used to be very common in the in the public square of Chicago, we had Bug House Square where people were just showing up in front of yeah. the Newberry Libraries, engaging. But now that dialogue has now now it's on Facebook and it's mostly on on bullshit on Facebook. So anyway, go on, continue. And that was a big thing in what's now termed the the Harlem Renaissance in New York. Right. Public That's conversations right. happening. Yeah. 
And that's, that's what a seminar is in a university. You get some books and you have to get together and you have to talk about what's good, what's bad, what works, what doesn't work, what argument is full of shit and what isn't. That's what you do in a university. And that's what you do in a revolutionary movement for different purposes, instead of becoming a class above other people. It's about creating a new world, what you want to make and doing it together. So, um, you know, the other thing with Occupy Wall Street um, was that it is part of that public politics is they made their decisions together publicly in the square. They raised their hands. It wasn't very efficient. There was tons of problems with how Occupy, um, how things actually turned out. But it was a brilliant experiment, at least, where they had people, you know, in in Chicago every night they would... um, move from uh, the spot on uh, Jackson and LaSalle, which was right outside the uh, the Chicago, no, not the Chicago Stock Exchange. It was the Federal, the, uh, the, the uh, Federal Exchange. Federal Reserve. Federal, Federal Reserve. Reserve. Thank yeah. you. The yeah. Federal Reserve building at Jackson and LaSalle in the Financial District of Chicago. And then every night they'd go march over to um the to the square at uh, Grant Park, one of the little public um, squares that they have open. And they would, somebody would moderate. They use Robert's rules, basically, which is just a way of conducting meetings. And um, they would, people would make proposals if they said, oh, we want to do this and we want to do that with Occupy. Occupy needs to change their, you know, their uh, list of demands. This is what the Chicago list of demands is now going to be. We're going to edit it. And I propose that this goes on. So people would get up and you know, raise their hand, get in line to speak. They'd have a megaphone down there for the hundreds of people that would end up actually showing up to the meetings. Um, and, uh, you know, and they would speak their two minutes on what should be on the demands. And then after enough time, you know, the moderator would end up saying, OK, well, we're going to have to close this and um, vote on what do we want to put this new list of demands in our demands that goes on the website. What do we, you know, when the media references what the fuck does Occupy actually want, then this is going to be on it. And then they vote. They raise their hands. And that may or may not have been a good uh, actual counting process when you got hundreds of people raising and lowering, lowering their hands. But um, but they did it and they tried it. And it, and for the fir- there were people who'd never spoken for the first time, people who were bus drivers, people who didn't have a job, teenagers would come up and say what they wanted to say. And anybody could say it on that megaphone. And so you had people interacting and speaking what they want and what they want to actually decide as a group. They voted on something for the first time. And, and that made people, in, in other words, the, the, the Occupy took, created an electoral college that actually worked. It's, it's, it's deep that it's called it electoral college. In, in America, the public voting sphere, when it is, you know, a bunch of old white dudes up there, you know, drunk, you know, cousins of very important elected officials. Uh, but it's deep to call it, but elect, but Occupy Wall Street was a real electoral college. And that's why, um, you know, the, the, the plutocrats found out about it. And they were like, oh, we got it. We got to kill this. Let's call up our, 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 our point people in, in National Public Radio, in the New York Times, you know, because we can't use our folks, our Fox media people, you know, we got to use what where what could happen is, is that Occupy could do what ISO can't do is they can actually mobilize, mobilize the college generation of students, right? That's what that was why Occupy was a threat and they had to get 
the uh, the white liberal establishment to destroy Occupy because it was such a threat. Um, because you you know too many Chelsea's walking around there. Um, you know too many radicalized Jamal's, too many radicalized Shakitas up there. Then you got the then then the, then the plutocrats in the corporate state has got some problems. So that's why they had to get rid of Occupy, and they replaced it with Black Lives Matter. By the way, yeah, and there were lots of internal mistakes in Occupy that um, I've written about. That is, you know, we could always talk about. I don't think that that's the point of you know this conversation, but. Um, but no, it was a brilliant experiment. I think any movement has to do that. And Black Lives Matter, Me Too doesn't have that. You know, you could say people online who are using that hashtag could be a way. Anybody using that hashtag is talking about that and getting their ideas out. But it's not, there's no way people don't get together and vote like that. People don't, you know, Sean King wasn't there in some public square where people decided that they wanted Sean King to be their leader. No, media selected him. But it totally it's different. Like yeah, you know, all of, of uh, and that's interesting. Now, what's his name? Dalray or what's his name? Dalray, the other Black Lives Matter guy who wears the blue vest. Yeah, that's, uh, that was uh, D. Ray McKesson. D. Ray. D. Ray McKenson, I believe. Yeah, now he's at the, you, now you talk about, you talk about where academia is used to destroy movements. He's at the University of Chicago teaching a course on activism and this is that's one of the biggest you know i mean there should be a list of shame of the the occupy uh sellouts um you know the people that i mean not the occupy sellouts but the black lives matter uh, i mean uh, these people had no you know your d-rays in a pie would you say uh uh, real quick here um uh, so, uh, so very surprised that like literally like only like three people are tuned in live right now because this episode is live as fuck. This shit is really dope. And um, and if any of you three people tuned in, uh, you want to call in and ask a question, most likely won't. Uh, but three four seven eight five seven three nine three seven. And big shout out to Heather L who hit up the PayPal. Uh, 50% of what you just sent to the PayPal going straight to Talk Fury. Uh, you just covered this episode. Thank you. All right. All right. Heather, yeah, and you know, Heather out there. You That's ever not the rapper, Heather B. I think we're lagging. We're, we're talking over each other and the internet lag here. Okay, so go on. I'll interrupt you purposely. Right now, I'm not purposely uh, interjecting. <laughs> anyway, um, Call on in and bring your questions or your comments on this stuff. We love to bounce off with, uh, you know, with commenters um, or on Facebook or wherever. If you watch it live, leave a comment, you know, um, and we'll bring it up. Talk about it. But we're not, we're sometimes. Join the, the public, public, join the public square. Yeah. Well, a lot of times liberals do not like us. I mean, that that's a real thing. You know, we. You know, you can't criticize Black Lives Matter, um, you know, which is really a liberally funded I mean, group. And I don't, you know, I mean, we are radical Marxists and socialists over here. Um, but no, you cannot do that. It makes, again, it's why they had to destroy the Occupy movement because it was going against corporate America. You know, you got Citibank, Chase Bank, Bank of America funding Occupy, uh, funding Black Lives Matter. Um, got all these, you know, the, you know, but Occupy was a radical organization that was going after these very, very movements. And it was, it was not popular and it had to be destroyed. 
And you really need movements that have critical dialogue going in it all the time. And that's what revolutionaries, any revolutionary movement knows and understands. There's all kinds of critiques and criticism and hashing out ideological differences happening in social movements. And you have to, or it's not healthy. I mean, I, I mean, not only healthy, it won't, you won't be able to sustain any movement that is connected to the people. Um, I'm trying to remember the word that's, that's the, um, gosh, I'm dropping my, uh, my revolutionary knowledge here, but the, there's essentially a concept in, in, um, you know, Marxist Leninism and that Mao, Maoism picked up, but, uh, but following the line of the people, the people's line, essentially, that um, they will always check you and any sort of, you know, con you know, revolutionary government. If you have a successful revolution, whatever it is, whatever movement or whatever stage that movement is at, the people will always check it yeah. if you get out of line or if there's any kind yeah. of elitism that starts to grow within a movement. That's if you're trying to eliminate class and more classes start building up, which did happen in communist, you know, uh, Soviet Union eventually destroyed it. Um, that that the people, the people, the working people of the masses, the mass line, maybe that's the word, will always check that. And you have to. And the rule is that you follow that and you respect the mass line of people who will check any kind of group, whether it's an intellectual right. class, a government that's built, whatever it is that are supposed to be representing them. Um, so any movement that can't respect a mass line of people criticizing them and can't respond to those criticisms healthily and say that they want dialogue and engagement and, you know, some sort of democratic voting system will have to be a part of that in, in whatever form they, they decide to take, whatever organizational form they take, is bullshit. And you see that with Black Lives Matter. I mean, there's some, there's some, and to be fair, I don't know everything happening with every single um chapter there's some more radical chapters than others um interesting to note black lives matter england put out a, a public announcement that they don't follow the uh the censorship of anti of anti-zionists in england and they support palestine you don't see national black lives matter in the united states doing that so there's variations and i don't want to you know take that away there's local variations of what people are trying to do with it but an overall movement like nationally in the united states of it there's no dialogue from either people on the outside who don't like Black Lives Matter or people who are involved on the bottom using the hashtag to participate in what they actually want out of it. There's no structure for people to hash out what they want and what they believe in and where the movement should go. And that's 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 a distinguishing thing of new movements that are media run or at least media co-opted um, like Black Lives Matter got in 2015. What was happening in Ferguson was not the same as what Black Lives Matter is now as it is um, as it is presented by the media. And, and, and Black Lives Matter in Ferguson, they weren't calling themselves Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter swooped in and they had this dope hashtag. And so the people began saying it, but it was just one of the shouts of, you know, burn it down, Black Lives Matter. Black Lives I Matter, know. burn it down. And Phoenix Kalita, she's not on the show here today, but she was there in Ferguson. Am I right, uh, William? Yeah. Essentially direct uh, journalism straight from Phoenix. Yeah. One thing that really stands out is that um, 
when they were picking up glass and whatnot the next mornings after the night times, um, the police would roll by in their police cruisers and throw banana peels at the black people cleaning up stuff. Oh, wow. I'm not surprised that Phoenix, Phoenix was rising. Phoenix was there. Um, Maybe yeah, no, it's, talk about well, that. Maybe we could talk about that on our next show is what was happening in Ferguson and, and parsing out what are the organic parts of the movement and what's astroturf. And that is a yeah. huge topic. That is a huge thing that we could start talking about. Black Lives Matter is largely astroturfed. Um, and, and go ahead. Oh, and it was just deep because um, uh, Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton tried to come down to Ferguson, and them kids drove them off. I mean, there's this thing they were they were they 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 drove not they drove them off. They shouted them down and chased them back into their cars and demanded. I mean, you see this picture of Jesse Jackson and, and looking befuddled, and 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 uh, Sharpton looking all simp. I mean, in there with his due, all just drove, you know, like wrote and and being escorted out of there by all these, you know, these young black students. Many of them who have now died mysterious deaths, by the way. Many of them yeah. just died mysterious deaths. Yeah. But no, those those kids were on point, and that was why they probably needed to get Black Lives Matter in there because they knew this was a potential, this was potential revolutionary. You know, so you got to get in, and, and and that's really what blew what blew Black Lives Matter up. Um, and it's just it's deep. I mean, it's 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 real deep. But no, Ferguson. You know, um, I don't celebrate. Uh, I don't celebrate. Uh, uh, um, you know, Thanksgiving anymore. I do Ancestors Day, and we need to give shouts out and pour out vibrations and uh, libations and vibrations for those young folks in Ferguson, revolutionaries who gave their lives um, and no one talks about them anymore. Now we got goofies like Sims, like Sean King, he's not even black. Um, and all these people that are pimping, pimping black folks, pimping black voices. Um, and uh, no, it's just, it's just this deep, that process. You know, thinking about that astroturf uh, factor, like some folks that we used to associate with because, again, before 2015, it was really hard to tell who was what. Like, definitely one thing that I could say Bernie Sanders definitely did accomplish was he made a whole bunch of the mark-ass busters out themselves. And uh, we used to fuck with these niggas, um, Leslie Mack and um, uh, uh, Ricky, uh, Ricky L. Hines, son of a pig. Nigga, you were raised by a pig and went into the military, buster. But, um... <clears throat> Damn, but like military. right right when that Black Lives Matter, um, like the sentence, because that's my thing is Black Lives Matter is a sentence, mm -hmm. right? Before anything else, it is a sentence that when you say it, the way someone responds to that sentence tells you a lot about them. And um, they yeah. immediately started a new podcast and started a, a Tumblr page when that was really popping before Sester Foster called um black lives matter uh, no ferguson response network and they tried to monetize it like and i thought that oh like these are people doing something good and they're gonna go out there and put in work now in retrospect i'm like oh these are fucking grifters leslie mack is a grifter 
her husband, very white guy on the Twitters, is a grifter, right? Like, they don't actually give a shit about shit, which is why they started that, and they stopped after a few episodes when it wasn't really clicking. That's like uh, Ricky L. Hines. Last episode he ever did of his podcast is extra hilarious to me because the title of it is The Most Qualified Candidate, and it was just a whole episode tongue on the red bottom of Hillary Clinton licking that boot like the whole episode was nothing but that and ended up with Trump anyway so yeah like this um this next episode we're planning for so I guess um in between time like when I'm on break from a shift or I'm not scooping cat litter or something I'll uh try to find shit that I can find where like um the grifters or the astroturfing on Black Lives Matter and I'm sure, like, maybe you'll you'll have time, Eric Hudson. Maybe you have some shit already in your back pocket. Springler, maybe you already have some articles here and there. And, yeah, yeah. so we can essentially start show prep now. And that's good because you get more engagement that way. Because if we start show prep now and say uh, it's Sunday now and we have the link up, you know, it's not live, but you have the link for the scheduled right. broadcast up then people know uh you know five days ahead of time oh they're gonna do an episode about this what's that call in number i'm gonna be ready so it's good to yeah like maybe do this in the last 10 minutes of every episode plan the next episode all right let me turn my microphone back off (laughs) that's dope no keep it up brother you got things to say no that that, and i like how you shout out that (laughs) shout out in the military gonna kill some folk go get some skills no, um, that, that, that's deep. We should. We should. I'm going to start doing that because I want to really start focusing on um, uh, the, the folks in Chicago that are good. Because that's the thing. It's kind of, man, Black Lives Matter. It's like, man, this is 2020. How the fuck is it that our, like, what's happened where we are still begging for our lives to matter? And it just shows you about, I mean, that's so obsequious. That's so slavish. Like we are begging for our lives to matter. We built this country 400 years ago. We, you know, the reason why there are public schools is because of us after when the, when they, when they, we were, when we freed ourselves from chattel slavery during the reconstruction, that was, we had, those were our public schools, uh, the public universities. That was about us affirmative action which now basically benefits um you know i know chelsea can't talk about this because she can't you know can't you know dis you know but no I, 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 there's a professor at a university who's who's asian and she's talking about you know that you, you know talking about how affirmative action is used to hurt asians um well, you you know, affirmative action hurts Asians when when black folks are getting affirmative action over Asians. It's crazy. And so we've got to develop a revolutionary where it's black power matters. Um, but yeah, no, I'm excited to be a part of this. And I definitely have um, some some articles about these grifters. You know, maybe we come up with grifters you know, Negro grifting, Matt, we got to get a, a, a tight, a great, um, a great name for this, 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 um, unique thing where we, we start talking about this real, cause these are poverty pimps. I mean, that's really what it is. It is poverty pimping on black people. 
Okay. Yeah, and you know, next week, if we get into um, Black Lives Matter some more, we should bring up uh, Mr. Tyree Connors Page. Hmm. Um, I don't know, maybe they've already covered this this guy, uh, William, but he was arrested for um, fraud uh, for making Black Lives Matter Greater Atlanta. Um, oh, I, <laughs> yeah, it took like hundreds of thousands of dollars and just oh. bought like home, bought some property for himself, you know, some and, um, you know, and I think part of the idea here isn't to, you know, focus on Black Lives Matter itself as being some exemplary failure or something of movements, but looking at how high the stakes are right now of doing something, um, especially from a Black power tradition that is so strong in this country and so influential in terms of what we're going to do. Because I could talk all day about some grifters in Occupy Wall Street. I could talk about the white supremacy and the elitism that was behind closed doors that really screwed up some stuff despite the very leaderless facade and horizontalist organization that they had, how segregated it was. We could talk about all of that too, but like the Occupy rose and fell real fast. But what's happening with a movement that's been here for five years and is still claiming to represent people for such monumental problems and yet there's all these issues happening. So yeah. I, I'll and be really con- excited to talk about it. But. And that continues to always, like Bernie Sanders, sheep herd Black folks into the Democratic Party. I mean, just like right out, out you know, in, right, in, right at the beginning of the election, they were out in the White House protesting Trump when they should have been building a revolution, you know, when, they, when they, it shouldn't have been about them trying to save the Democratic Party. Black folks are always counted on to save the Democrats, to save white the white liberal establishment. And at the very end, they can always depend upon us to do that. So why would they give us anything? This is why right now you got Bernie Sanders begging to be Treasury, uh, begging to be Labor Secretary and Elizabeth uh, Warren begging to be treasurer uh, you i mean uh, bernie sanders begging to be director of uh US director of the commerce department and and warren uh begging to be in the tre- begging to head the treasury department and and biden comes out there and says stuff he shuffles out there and he makes uh, the great appointment that bernie sanders um political director a campaign director has been appointed has been appointed to his transition team to be to work on not even be head not even be a director of the transition team but to to work on policy for the transition team that ends that ends during the during as soon as he walks into the oval office what's the point and then and then and then the press say well um what's this about what's this about uh what's this about um bernie sanders and elizabeth warren wanting to be in the cabinet and and biden just walks on <laughs> He just ambles, walks off the stage and says nothing else about it. I mean, that's all we got out of this. I mean, so it's, 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 yes, uh, Chelsea. In other words, yes, 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 yes. And uh, what, oh, what up? Go ahead, William. Oh, cause th- this is way left field and, and uh, not really part of it because you got me thinking about Uber Eats and I'm like, fuck, while I mix this down, I think I want to fucking eat something. And um, and Chipotle Mexican Grill, this is how they're pushing their menu. Just the tackiness of the profit motive. It's the cuffing season menu. 
All right, oh, with a, with oh. a little heart, and the background is pink. Oh. So, well, they go to whatever's trendy, right? So one one month it's going to be cuffing season. Sometimes they got their employees wearing shirts of like, you know, we're all in this together with a fist up in the air. Like, oh. it's all trend to them. It's all branding because we've let it all get so cheap. At my right. job, the tackiness, right? Because you know how Black Lives Matter sounds, right? And as I said, it's a sentence, but it also... It's an appealing sentence to the ear, right? Like all the consonants and vowels, they come together very well. At the factory I transferred to, a whole bunch of the staff, they have these t-shirts that say, our work matters. And then it says Uh. essential employee under it. (laughs) The tackiness. Well, that's, it, kind it, of, it, that's not the movement's fault, but the fact, like, how does the movement respond to that? If there's so much co-opting of stuff that doesn't represent the movement, it doesn't help the movement, why isn't the movement out there being like, this is not us, this is not what we do, this is what we're not about, and that has to happen. Instead, it is the movement's this is what fault. happens when a movement doesn't have that kind of accountability. It, it is the movement's fault because the movement is being paid by it. And that Black Lives, the leadership of Black Lives Matter in, in America is being paid. And, 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 and in Illinois, they're being paid for it. So it is their fault because you would never have anybody. There wasn't people walking around with a Black Panther t-shirt on sponsored by, by Clorox bleach. There wasn't, you know, during Occupy, there wasn't like all of a sudden somebody at Xerox saying, man, let's, let's, this Occupy, we can, let's put this on, let's be clear, let's, let, you know, at Clorox saying, or, or, or you know, or uh, um, the tobacco saying, let's, um, let's, let's call up these cigarettes, Black uh, Occupy uh, cigarettes, <laughs> it, that it was too radical for that. You couldn't do that. You would, you know, it has to be a movement that has already been co-opted. It is. It has to be a movement that was never really a movement. And that's why you can do that with Black Lives Matter. That's why you can do it because it really was never, Black Lives came into Ferguson. It wasn't, you know, with this, you know, this woman who did not live, I believe, in, and I'm not want to get any names here, but lived in California. And so, so, so that's the, what we have to, you know, who's now on Vogue and stuff like that and, and, and runway stuff. I mean, what I'm saying is you can't, it is the movement's fault when they don't, when they, A, because they were never really a movement in the first place. And then if they, if, if, I mean, it'd be great if they were like, okay, yeah, we really weren't a movement, but now, you know, Harriet Tugman and Oshun, they're calling us to really be a movement, then they would say we're going to denounce Chase Bank and Bank of America that foreclosed on black houses on on poor white folks nationwide then we are going to denounce them and take their paychecks and take their checks that they want to give us and we're going to accept the check and then rip it up on TV we got to hold these folks accountable and that's why I appreciate what William's trying to do yeah, and they and they can't trip, right? Because especially the identity politics crowd, they can't say, mm, even exactly. if they did try to say shit to me, like, I really, like, when I say I don't give a fuck, like, I actually mean that shit. Like, I will right. flex on anybody very loudly and very publicly. But also, like, 
go ahead, play identity politics here. Phoenix Kalita is like 15,000 identities, literally like fucking Jewish, black, indigenous, Puerto Rican. Like, nigga, her grandmother was literally born a slave in the hills of Puerto Rico. You know, like fucking uh, Springler here, cis woman, Eric, light-skinned nigga black, me, I'm black, uh, Maddie Stump. I'm light-skinned, motherfucker. Ah, you, you lighter. Light-skinned? You lighter than Tupac. <laughs> um, fucking, but, um... And then we got Maddie Stump contributing now, trans woman. Come on, play identity politics with me all day, baby. I'll do it. You know, so, yeah, that's what my Wine Cellar Media is uh, bringing. And yes, yeah, Maddie Stump. Folks, get used to hearing that name and that voice more. Uh, came on for Trans uh, Day of Remembrance. Well, I saw that. I saw that. Yeah. And my idea there is um, to call Maddie Stump's program Open the Door, uh, D-O-O-R, Days of Our Remembrance. Right. So uh, we'll just do trans remembrance all the time while niggas is still alive. All right. right, And um, I need to eat and mix this down and then go to the factory because it is very important that people get XL protein bars. We're packing the big ones, you know, and I'm running the machine at three hundred and twenty five a minute because that's what capitalism gives you five machines. 325 protein bars a minute. That's how we're helping the world. All right. Well, someday, someday we're going to socialize that factory. That's right. That's right. I, I think <laughs> about ethical ways to run it, right? Like there's a, there's biodegradable film, right? Because like you look at the film we're running, that's all plastic. That shit, what, what we waste in the factory goes to the mm-hmm. landfill. But then what's not wasted is literally still waste because when someone buys the protein bar, what are they doing with the plastic? They're not going to reappropriate that into wallpaper in their house. It goes in the garbage any damn way. The destination of that plastic was always the landfill from the point of manufacturing. And now I'm hitting the table. So the show's over once I start slapping the table. <laughs> right. Maybe that can be another episode after the next episode. We can talk about what your socialized factory would look like, William. You got expertise Word. and you got, got uh, education on that. And Seriously. now I break out another post-it note. God damn it. This is how it That's happens. Right. I mean, if, if, if when the workers are working harder and production gets up, then they get a bonus. Then they get a bonus. Bonuses yeah. by productivity. Bonuses if people are buying more. Everybody votes who works there and what they want to produce. Yeah, I can actually, I can run my mouth on this shit at length, which means yeah. I'm going to be a guest on a show that I'm producing. That's fantastic. I'm going right, to be right. a guest. All right, right. so, yeah, so, folks, look out for the wine cellar. They're going to have William J. Jackson as a guest. After eight long years of trying to get this guy, he's going to show up finally. Yeah, and I've been in the industry four years. Like, I've been thinking about, like, how that shit could work ethically. I mean, it runs on a lot of electricity. Like, even when people look at compressed air, you got to remember, a compressed air machine is powered by electricity. But that electricity does not have to be coal. Like, you can literally... I knew this when I was a child. I'm sure we all knew this. You set up... It doesn't even have to be a windmill. If you're by a river, you have a water mill. It spins. It generates an electrical energy. You can run the factory on that. You can have biodegradable film. All the machine parts are stainless steel. We're not throwing that shit away and if a machine part breaks you can weld it you can fix it we can eliminate the shit out of a massive amount of uh shit going into landfills and then after you do that you move forward about a half a century with these ideas you can start going in those landfills and finding shit that really shouldn't have been thrown the fuck away in the first place and this is how i start radicalizing young people 
Mm. I started doing this when, when I was still working in a factory. Not factory. When I was still working in a restaurant, I work with a lot of young white kids, college aid kids, because that's who comes and works in a restaurant in a place like Florida. And the thing I hit them with is my chair argument. Young man, young woman, young person. Um, we never need to make another chair again. Now, go ahead and look at me funny after I say that. But think about it. In this restaurant alone, multiple chairs, next restaurant, abandoned building, chairs, in landfills, chairs, in the stores, chairs, in the factory, in the um, in the warehouse that haven't been sent off to distribution yet, chairs. And what happens when a chair leg breaks? Fucking repair it. Stop throwing shit away. And you start getting these little, these little white niggas, 19, 20 years old. Um, I'll always point out, my first co-host, Lauren Fricky, I met that kid at, was 19, and she was an evangelical Christian Republican. Yeah. In yeah. 2016, when I was leaving Florida, uh, she was voting Sanders in the primary and going to a climate march and then going rock climbing after that. Are you are you writing this down for the show? And wait, can that show? Can your show be part of Parkview? Because I want to, I want to interview. I want to be one of the I want to be one of the interview viewers. Yeah, do it. All right, and then and can you keep this? Can I know you splicing? Can you put this in in this comment or maybe this show? But seriously, we should ask people to call in or write in. Who's more dark skin? Because you jumped me on that. If I had said <laughs> I'm more darker than you, then you know, because I think I'm, I think I'm darker than you. So let's let let the people decide who's more darker. I'm I th- I'm I'm darker. You ain't you ain't you ain't darker than me, my brother. You I'm, just got that old backpack thing about you and stuff like that. So people, you know, no. Anyway, I gotta I I gotta run literally uh, run. But uh, this has been an amazing show. All right. All right, peace. Later, yep. yo. Yeah, I have that invisibility cloak privilege. Now, let me end the Facebook Live. Uh, where is that? Bing, bing, bang. Stop live stream. Just run. And run. blog talk. Let's end that. <laughs> there we All go. Right. Thank you for using blog talk radio. Goodbye. All right. All right. And you're going to hang in there. You're going to go do some gangster stuff at the college? Yep, got some finals, got some uh, got some stuff to grade, um, got some students confused, thinking that uh, it's, we're both capitalists and socialists at the same time here in this country. Yeah, that's that's the thing I've been dealing with this week. Yeah, yeah and I, I, and I, um, man, I, I wish I had more time to do extra things. There was a moment right there, like in the last fifteen minutes, like you said something about some shit and the exasperated facepalm. It was so natural leaned in and i was like that right there that represents the wine cellar right there you say something and then you face palm at the realization of what you just said <laughs> yep yep all right yeah see this was constructive and i, and I was I, I i kept thinking that like you know what if i just sit back and let them go these two are gonna go because like that's the same shit that phoenix and i do we're always on with this shit as soon as she comes to the factory picks me up from work and we're driving home we're immediately saying this shit like i think we were talking about um how we have three cats and how that does you know uh, multiple cats makes multiple chores more vacuuming more you know lint brushing and whatnot and then she's like i wanted a snake and i'm like well you should have voted for warren in the primary like we're always on with this shit (laughs) so i knew letting you two riff would be constructive Yep. Yeah. And I think I'll also just throw in there, I don't know what's going on with this garment, but that shit looks cool. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. Oh, like, this? Yeah. Yeah. What's that reason? Your uniform. I was like, yeah. <laughs> reappropriate. Reappropriate that shit. Yeah. Yeah. Like I literally. That, that's why. Like um. Like this is how busy I am, right? Because I knew that I'm gonna have to like multitask this shit. So mm-hmm. I'm playing clips before the show, like the official show starts. And I made the last clip seven minutes, the longest one, so that I could run upstairs, put away some laundry, put on my work clothes. So when it's time to go, I'm not scrambling. I just put my my boots on and hit the door. You know, like my hard hat and my tools are already in the back seat, ready to go. That's what's up. You got to that's a complex system. All right. Yeah, (laughs) it's tough. All right, so yeah, you, yeah, you're bringing a, a cool image to the program, and the podcast audio is still recording, so you folks are getting a bonus segment for no reason. But yeah, ah. like a, a cool image works. Like folks like to see cool, and that we we've riffed about that before. Like there is a sadness to it, but then also like that's your personal style, so also floss it. It's cool. Mm-hmm. All right, all right, you hang in there. I got to get the heck out of here. All right, you too, William. Uh, I will see you next week. Have a good one. Indeed. Be safe. And meeting in podcast audio. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC. 